you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. My name is Oliver Banks and I'm proud to be your host and also your guide to help you make your retail transformation a success. Thanks for tuning in. This one is episode 143, number 143. You know physical stores have been on the roller coaster ride during the COVID era. But as we slowly, tentatively emerge, it's interesting to see actually the variation in how stores are returning. Some stores are doing a great job, others could be better, shall we say. (laughs) To help us understand more, I'm delighted to welcome a guest today who has been out hitting the pavements, hitting the sidewalks, and experiencing a variety of stores, different categories, different areas, different locations, different sizes as well. So today we are joined by Ian Scott. Now, Ian, if you don't know him, is an independent retail consultant with over 20 years of experience in the retail display sector. His past work has included design and implementation of retail store and display designs, store research, behavioral psychology, and keeping on track of global innovation and trends. He advises clients on strategy as well as insights on global trends and innovations in and around the retail landscape. As you'll hear, he travels extensively visiting stores to capture the best practice and new innovations within the retail market and has worked with brands such as Lego, Coca-Cola, Dyson, Procter & Gamble, The Body Shop and many more. So I'm really glad to be talking to Ian and learning much more. And actually, if you didn't catch his session at Retail Transformation Live just a couple of weeks ago now, then you must tune in and grab that session. It's a great session. You can find out much more about that at retailtransformation.live where you can register and catch the replay if you did not manage to catch Ian's session live. Show notes for today are going to be at obandco.uk slash 143. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ian Scott as we return to stores. Well, a very warm welcome to the Retail Transformation Show to Mr. Ian Scott. Ian, how are things? Very well, thank you. Uh, Very well. How are you doing, Ollie? I'm doing really well. I'm excited about our conversation, though, I have to be honest, because you've been out to a lot of different shops since retail has done its sort of grand reopening. And that's what we're going to be diving into today. I'm really excited to sort of get your perspective on lots of different categories, lots of different shops, lots of different locations as well, as you've been uh, touring the UK, it seems like. (laughs) Yes, I I didn't realise how much I got out and about until we weren't allowed to because of lockdown. So yeah, since the stores reopened in April, I've been to London several times. I've been to Leicester. I'm off to Edinburgh next week. I'm off to uh, the West Midlands tomorrow. So, yeah, it's, it's quite nice to get the mileage up again and get out and about. <laughs> Dust off the old sat-nav, yeah. Exactly. So talk us through just briefly some of your store tours. What have you been looking at since when, – when did things reopen? I can't really remember. Was it April? Uh, April the 12th. April the 12th. There yeah, we go. April the 12th. What have you been looking at? So it was a mixture. So 
that that week um, were very much about stores reopening. So I went to Leicester, which is my local city, and to London that week, more to see how brands and retailers were going around the process of reopening stores. And there were some mixed reviews. I, I was mm. really surprised. I went to Foss Park, the big uh, out-of-town retail park in Leicester. Yes. And, and some of the basics weren't there, like graphics hadn't arrived in time to go into frames in the windows of stores. There were two-meter-high screens with no content running, dirty entrances, and some really poor-quality window displays as well. So that really surprised me. And I, it sort of – I think – the real reason was that most of the staff were on furlough right up to the 11th hour. Yes. So that while there was six weeks' notice of the stores reopening, the staff weren't in place to actually activate certain things. So that was a bit of a shock. Yeah. But then on the flip side, you know, we've seen some, um, some wonderful new stores coming through, some refurbishment of existing stores, um, and uh, not, not just you know stores I've seen in, in London and other cities, but also around the world have been some fabulous um, new projects sort of announced this week which really do warm the cockles and make you feel that uh, physical retail is not dead obviously i'm a huge advocate of that definitely definitely well tell, tell me what's what's been the most exciting store that you've you've seen over the past few months i thought about this question before the podcast and to be honest I think the most exciting one is actually Selfridges, which may sound like an obvious cop-out, but <laughs> you know we're living in a world where everyone is saying the department store is dead, um, and then you go along to Selfridges, um, and, and a friend of mine, Nick Lodge, did some um, queue analysis when stores reopened on April the okay. 12th. And, and in London on Oxford Street, Selfridges had the second biggest queue behind, surprise, surprise, Primark, mm. who obviously had no online presence, so therefore their physical offer was much anticipated. Mm. But Selfridges worked really hard. I mean, they always work hard, to be fair, on their store. Um, but they, they had uh, an outdoor spin class around the back of the store, and then they were still continuing their sort of Planet Earth, Project Earth campaign which is more of a sustainable offer which ran throughout the store in, in all sorts of categories and you go into the store and you see how hard they work at making it a real destination as our friend Richard Hammond said to me once he says you can buy everything in Selfridges cheaper elsewhere but you go to Selfridges because Selfridges make that experience and the process so much more enjoyable than just sort of seeking out the cheapest way of buying it mm. Which was, of course, Harry Selfridge's original dream, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It was. And it's, it's great to see the principles are still embodied. Yeah. And we've been reading last week that they may be up for sale and that may be a sign of the success of the store. I just hope that if they do get sold, that the buyers come in and embrace the principles of what made the store great in the first place. Yep. You know, I, I can't think of another department store that's got a skate bowl. Uh, has a, a a cinema in house is about to offer, I think it's got just got a wedding license, yes. so it can do marriages, yes. you know, and and even things like the changing rooms, which are normally hidden, you know, at the back of the store, out of the way, they're they're freestanding on the middle of the floor, and they've got these really cute wooden ones that look like dolls' houses for the children, and in the fashion area, they have this stunning sort of uh, organically shaped changing room, which is made out of frosted acrylic rods. So the visual impact of the light, and this is a changing room. So they're investing in creating real spectacle and theatre in the sort of areas of the store that most people hide away mm. and, and don't even consider. And you see that at every corner with them. 
Well, it's an interesting one, changing rooms, because actually from a customer touch point perspective, they're, they're incredibly important, right? But equally, you don't sell anything through a changing room by itself, right? So it's always this sort of quite interesting balance as to how much investment a, a changing room gets and what sort of premium space you give it on the shop floor. Do you, do you want to put it front and centre? Or actually, is it you're waiting for someone to commit to a purchase or semi-commit at least? enough to pick up a hanger off the rail and walk around with it to wherever the location. It is an interesting conundrum to, to take in. I agree. And, and I think when um, we had some of those sort of partial returns to normality last year in between mm. lockdowns, you got a sense of how important the changing room was because I went into an X store in Leicester to have a look, and this was June last year. And you weren't allowed to touch the product and you weren't allowed to use the changing room. And they were the two primary differentiators between a physical fashion shop and an online one. So you suddenly realized that you could look and you could buy. And that's pretty much the online offer, you know. So so that would really gave me a sense of how important a changing room is, particularly obviously in that fashion area, mm. where you get to not just check the sizing, but is the fit right for you? Does it feel right? Do you look good in it? And you deprive yourself of that, and suddenly the physical store is struggling to be a point of difference, really. Yes, definitely. Let's shift things up a little. You, you mentioned lots of uh, new types of store, lots of store refurbs a little earlier on. Who's done an awesome job out there? Well, I think there, is, there are several that, that came to mind here. Um, I was lucky enough to visit the Lush store on Oxford Street a few weeks mm. ago, and I had a, a tour around with Sergio, the store manager. Um, and I've, I've been a huge fan of Lush for years. You know, their standard store concept has always been a benchmark for how to do physical retail. Yes. Um, I was lucky enough to visit their two stores in Tokyo a couple of years ago, and you saw how they evolved the offer and in integrating an app into the store experience, which is very reflective of the Asian and the Japanese shopping culture. I always used to describe their old stores as wonderfully analog. There were no screens. <laughs> you know, you went in and they just made the physical space brilliant. You know, the merchandising, the messaging, the presentation of product, the unitary, and very importantly, the staff. They have the best staff I've seen in any store around the world consistently. Yeah, and the sensory piece is always just so amazing and lush. You know, the smells, obviously, but also getting in and touching and feeling and seeing what a product does, they, they just do an awesome job of bringing it to life. Well, I, I, um, I run retail safaris where I take people around the centre of London looking at a mix of different stores. And I remember taking a couple of senior directors from Nestle into Lush. And they just started and went, we can't even showcase food like this. And they're doing it with soap. <laughs> it's soap on a bed of ice here, you know. Um, and they were almost depressed in the, in that the, they were going, wow, this is incredible because I want to eat all these products, you know. And also each category is subtly designed differently. It's not the same generic unitary that repeats. So you don't get that sort of paradox of choice where you have thousands of the same size and shape product all in neat rows. Um, and they, they really present things in an interesting way. So the refit that, that opened just a couple of weeks ago, I was really interested to see how they've evolved it. And they took elements of the, the Tokyo stores. They took elements of the Liverpool refit, which was based on a 1950s department store principle uh, and part of what worked before. And they really worked them together and evolved them to create 
a stunning space. Mm. Uh, they, they really, I was always worried when Lush come up with something new, I'm worried they're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> you know, they're going to lose that mojo and, and, and miss out, but they get it right every time. Uh, so, yeah, that, that to me was a brilliant store. Another one that I visited last week was the Levi's House, which is their sustainable store on Great Marlborough Street, just along the road from Liberty's. Um, and that is a beautiful store. I've been reading about how Levi's have been pushing their sustainable mission for, for a number of years now. Mm. And this is one of these wonderful stores where they have a load of vintage clothing. They've got a load of repurpose in seconds and yep. there's a personalization offer. But again, like Lush, you sit and talk to the staff and the story comes alive. It is, is incredible. Their enthusiasm and their knowledge and their pride in this unique store. You know, they chose Soho because it's, it's one of the centers for refurbished, upcycled, recycled sort of clothing boom that's going on. So they position themselves right in the center of that world mm. and they tell the story brilliantly. It's, it's a, an incredible story. And I think one of the other areas that has evolved a lot is the um, refillable and packaging free food offer. Mm. Yes. I've visited three different stores, Marks and Spencer's, Waitrose and Asda in the last nine months. And they've all offered this sort of refill station packaging free offer. Um, I'm, I'm just writing a report on the M&S one, actually, that I went to last week. And there's a chance to really see how they're integrating these properly into the stores um, and how the staff are really embracing them. So we're really seeing that becoming a mainstream uh, solution within supermarkets, not a little bit of a one-off PR exercise, which is great to see. And then just in the last two days, the, fi the final sort of development area I've seen is the the wonderful Tower Theatre that Apple have redeveloped in LA. Mm. And then also the La Samaritan, which is a stunning building in Paris that LVMH have spent 16 years and 750 million euros refurbishing. Wow. <laughs> you know, these, these are stunning environments in which they happen to have a shopping experience. So you really have these iconic buildings that have been painstakingly refurbished. And that's a real interesting angle where you're recycling a physical space, mm. but not in a way that, say, Aesop or Lush would recycle, but they're really refurbished. And both of them, they went back and used artisans and the correct materials and the processes to recreate the stores as they were. And they've both sort of come to the market in the last couple of days. So that's a real interesting development where you're going to love the physical space as much as the brand and the proposition. Definitely. I'd like to come back to that in just a moment. But just before we do, you create these awesome reports. You, you know, clearly we're talking about a lot of visual things here and you do create these, these amazing reports. Can we put some on the show notes, Ian? Should we, should we put some photos just to help people understand a little bit more from, from some of your tours? Yeah, absolutely. More than happy uh, to send you through some different bits and pieces. Um, our mutual friend, Carl Boutte also has... Um, invited me to put all of my reports on his website as well, which is quite nice. So there's a, an easily accessible reference point for them. Uh, just, just to help illustrate some of the examples that we've, we've spoken about today. So head over to obandco.uk slash 143 to check those out. Thank you, Ian. And by the way, if you do like it, you have to follow Ian on, uh, on LinkedIn in particular, because he's just shared some incredible stuff, really, really eye-opening stuff. Tons of detail. You will love it if you are loving this episode, which I'm sure you will be. 
let's just rewind to just just a moment ago. You were talking about flagships and huge amounts invested in flagships. But one of the challenges I always have with flagships is that only a, a small percentage of the target market would, would ever really go and visit that flagship. Is it a marketing spend? Is it a brand spend? Is it a vanity spend? What are your thoughts? I always think flagships are quite interesting because in my mind, their their job is more than just filling the tills of that physical space. I worry for a brand if they open a global flagship that really offers proper immersive experience and expect it to fund its existence through the revenue uh, and sales that come through. Mm. I mean, first of all, it's been proven by companies like Sephora that when you open a physical store, your online activity in that geographical area increases. So we do see that cross-channel effect of stores. So a, a global flagship should do that. You should also then get huge coverage on social media, uh, everyone talking about those stores. You know, I, I've been talking about, you know, the LVMH and Apple stores just today on LinkedIn. So yep. I'm helping voice those and spread the word like dozens of other people I've, I've seen on LinkedIn as well. <laughs> so so a flagship really should do that. But also, you know, we, we're seeing this shift now in the role of physical retail. You know, mm. I, I've been reading for the last 15 months, you know, physical retail is dead. And there's a whole load of statistics that people are being spouting about, oh, everyone's online now. And I'm going, well, that's not really a surprise because the government's closed the shops. I said, it's not really an open playing field. And we won't see an open playing field for a long time. You know, here in the UK, if we're lucky, I think July the 19th, we may have restrictions lifted. But you're still going to have a a, a certain sector of physical shoppers who are going to hold back because Mm. they will still be nervous. They won't trust the government. They will still fear it will come back. So it may be six or 12 months beyond the all clear before you can really start looking at shopping behavior to find out physical's role. But, But there are still some statistics that put this in context. Global retail sales before the pandemic, 83% all physical stores. And that has dropped to 75% now. So even with lockdown, government closing stores, all this fear, it's still three quarters of all products are bought in a physical shop. Mm. So it is a massive sector. So I think it's it's a little bit premature to say that physical retail is dead. We are seeing shrinkage. We've seen, you know, to start with, there were fragile, financially fragile companies that were just pushed over the edge at the moment to hit. We've then had other companies that have struggled through either the shift in behavior or the fact that they've eventually they've, they've run out of the funds to keep themselves going during during the downturn. Yep. Others have struggled to pivot onto online as well. It is interesting when we, we briefly mentioned Primark before, they do not have an online offer, which is quite interesting. You know, people say they should, but I don't think their business model, which is bulk value, turn up with a pallet, stick it on the shop floor, you know, that doesn't shift very easily to one person buying an individual product and then two thirds of them returning them a week later. Yep. But they very cleverly leverage their social media. So you have people queuing overnight to go back into their stores on April the 12th to buy a shirt for £3. You know, it it seems crazy, but they work the other channels available to them and built a sense of community on social media that left people in anticipation of their stores opening. So so this physical store is... It's it's still going to be the primary point to come in and buy a product and leave with it in your pocket or your bag. But also, 
a side of the obvious brand experience in reference to the flagship stores, you're going to see physical shops playing a big part in supporting the other channels, mm. social media, apps, online, uh, even experiential sort of face-to-face experiences as well, where you may find that people will start the shop in the store to go and have a look and try, mm. and then they may complete the actual purchase sat on their sofa at home with the phone in their hand. And, and we're seeing a, a, a subtle shift in in how things can work. And there are two examples I've come across. Oh, yeah. In Brazil, there's a, there's a company called Far Shop in Brazil, which is their equivalent of Curry's, an electrical store. You can go in and you can have a demonstration of a product. Then in the store, on a laptop, you place your order and Uber delivers it to your house two hours later. So it's what's being called, you know, tr- try in store, buy online, deliver to home. Yep. That's when you when you get out of the store and you find a massive traffic jam as you're trying to get out of the car park. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, and particularly useful as well with electricals. You know, if you're buying a fridge freezer, yeah. um, you know, city centre stores, you can't necessarily turn up and, and either load it in your car or get your car near the door. And then likewise, Microsoft, um, I noticed recently, they closed all of their flagship stores. Uh, and then they've opened a few of them, including the one in London, yeah. and turned them into what are called Microsoft Experience Centers. And it's mm. just the ground floor. And you go in and you are chaperoned by a member of staff for COVID reasons. But they are particularly things like laptops. They're showcasing the laptop. There's a QR code on the screen. If you like it, you scan the QR code, you buy the product, it gets delivered to your house. So that's interesting. That is a global flagship store that has been flipped into basically a physical test for online sales. Yeah. So you're, you're seeing that sort of shift. So that the classic the, showroom model, right? Exactly. So the, the physical store will still be put the product, you know, take it home with you. It'll be about brand experience, but it will also facilitate digital channels as well. I think. Definitely, definitely. And have you seen any interesting examples where stores and online are working in other ways? I mean, I'm thinking we've got elements like the ability to connect in store, what are, any other any other examples that are really exciting you? Um, well, yeah, certainly Hero. I think they they are brilliant at at what they do because they take the physical experience and digitize it. Um, and and the flip side then is they will all they will also allow an online process to be interactive in a physical space. What I like about that was it was brilliant for lockdown where you could still have store store staff safely operating without customers and the customers dialing in to mm. interact with them and facilitating. But it's still a service that, that's valid beyond lockdown considerations as well, because it just becomes an extension of the online and digital experience for that brand. And you can facilitate a one-on-one digital or virtual sales process in store. And I particularly like that. Mm. And there are a lot of app, app activities that we're seeing coming through where you can facilitate browsing, you can you can also facilitate the purchase as well. You know, you, I mentioned Lush; they have touchscreens in store, so you can actually book a spa treatment in the basement. But you can also then interact with your phone, scan QR codes, browse product, which has been particularly popular uh, in Asia and is now coming through. And certainly with Lush, their thinking there was by having a QR code we can make the product tickets about a quarter of the size that they were and make the product the hero, not the ticket. So you'll see those, sort of, which, I, which I, I quite like because there was absolute common sense logic to that. It wasn't some techie millennial sat in a room who's never been in the store coming up with a wacky idea. You know, this was one of the things that came through that was recommended by the store manager to the store design team. Mm. He was like, let's make the ticket smaller. 
because their tickets, I always thought, were a great example of communication hierarchy in the way that they prioritized information. Mm. But they were, you know, uh, old school many six inches, five, six inches high, you know, 120 centimeters high, millimeters yeah. high. So some of their products are a lot smaller. So that made absolute sense where the ticket now is three centimeters high. Yes. And you can let the product be king, which we always have to remember is the most important thing. Yes. And in terms of, uh, I suppose, out of city centres, one of the big trends has been around convenience stores over the past few years as well. Are you seeing anything in particular as you look across perhaps different categories? You know, I know we've seen some home improvement, sort of small stores from the likes of Homebase, for example, uh, B&Q, I think maybe. Any other categories as you look at the convenience sector? I think, yeah, I think um, certainly that home improvement side is is really moving on and starting to become quite sophisticated. I mean, if, if you go into a typical DIY store, they're not a sophisticated shopping environment. Um, it's interesting, home base have opened a new concept that I went to see about three or four weeks ago, which did move it on a little bit. And, and they launched a, a very useful website, which is what started their idea. And what I loved about the website was they were looking at how people can shop in different ways. So if you wanted a... Mm. So this is a different website than the main corporate website. It's the, no, it's the main website and they've revamped it and they've taken elements of that and introduced it into the physical store. Right, okay. Because on, on the website, you know, if you're looking for a pot of paint, you could go, uh, I want Dulux and you could search for Dulux on the website. You could then also search the paint category. You could then also search bedroom. If it's your bedroom, you want to paint. Mm -hmm. So if you're coming from project point of view, a brand point of view, or a product point of view, they all allow you to navigate through the website to end up at tin of Dulux paint that you want. Mm. Uh, and I like that because they're not, you know, you may be inspired for different reasons going, I want to look at paint. So it's like, I've got to paint the spare bedroom. You can go through the spare bedroom project on the website or you can go through paint. And I love that because it is consumer friendly. They're not forcing you to buy in the way they want to sell. They're going, right, there are different ways you're going to be coming to us. and You're going to be seeking information in different ways. Let's facilitate. Mm. So the, 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 the store in Cheltenham embodies some of that. I, I think personally there were mixed results in the success, but what you were seeing is there was a lot more theming and building of environments because they recognize that people are really being driven by a project. You yes. know, let's do the patio, let's do the spare bedroom, let's do the kitchen. So they're starting to group things in a way that IKEA have done for years. IKEA are absolute geniuses of yes. room sets. I'm sure you like me, you, you've gone in to buy a rug and you come out with a coffee table, a sofa, a lamp and, and some picture frames as well <laughs> because because they just sell you the dream in the room set. So it's nice to see that sort of solution base coming through. Um, but yeah, coming back to what you're saying before, yeah, Homebase have developed a paint store offer, mm. uh, which I saw in South London, but B&Q are doing this as well, more like high street stores. Mm. B&Q also opened a concession in an Asta store up in Yorkshire as well. So you're seeing this sort of multiple touchpoint idea. Um, we've seen likewise IKEA on the Tottenham Court Road have had a kitchen studio for a while. Mm. And there are very strong rumours that they're going to be buying 214 Oxford Street, which was the Topshop mm. store just yeah. next to Nike Town. Interesting. Um, so it's a big space. 
uh, perhaps not as big as their out-of-town sites, but it's a city centre space. So you're immediately thinking, okay, how do they overcome that logistical issue? Because you're used to reversing the boot of your car up to the door yeah. of an IKEA. So, so there's a shift in that model, and I think that's going to be a real interesting sector that's going to evolve. Because I know B and Q are doing a lot to evolve their offer as well. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it, when you get into well, that example you shared, where actually um, from from Brazil you could have your laptop delivered home whilst you're on your way back it's yeah it's the same thing right it's just it's a coffee table or a shed <laughs> yeah exactly and and it takes away that logistics of oh crikey how do i how do i get the kids and and the wardrobe flat pack back home now i've put the back seats down and things like that so um, mm. it does you know the, the, when you're dealing with those large products there are genuine logistical considerations yeah but i think the opportunity to because i i genuinely think that the high street is going to be revitalized Everyone's talking about the death of the high street. Mm. But, you know, just looking at Oxford Street in isolation, they're building a 25-meter-high mound behind Marble Arch. <laughs> I'm still unconvinced mound. about the return on investment on that, but um, I'm going to be fascinated to see it. <laughs> you know, then then you see John Lewis and Marks and & Spencer's looking to redevelop their stores yeah. and include uh, office space and accommodation um, as well. We're seeing the, 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 the parking base filled in. And there are little pocket parks and trees being planted. You're seeing things like Souk, who are offering the temporary rental pop-up model where you can rent physical space by time of day or day of week. And right at the Tottenham Court Road end, we've got the Outernet development, which is really exciting. It's like a whole block with a refurbished Denmark street, which is going back to the old 70s model of cobbled streets and old music stores, amazing 4D screens, uh, pop-up stores and events and underground entertainment spaces. So that's just Oxford Street where you're seeing this redevelopment. So I think that there will be more potential workspace, more potential residential space on the high street, more community space. And if you do that, suddenly it's not to go shopping. It will become the proper focal point of town centres. You know, I've referenced Oxford Street, but this is applicable to Swindon or, you know, Hull or anywhere else around the country Mm. so that it becomes a focal point. You may well then see a lot more of these big brands that are out-of-town traditional retailers may start offering these sort of urban city centre variants because if these city councils develop properly, they're going to redevelop that space into a real focal point where people want to spend time. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It's, it's been really interesting hearing all of these different examples. It's inspiring, right? It, it conjures up new ideas and you can actually connect the dots from different ideas around the world to say, here's how our operating model could actually be configured to be able to serve the customer in this way or that way, right? It's, um, yes. Yeah. I mean, that that's hugely optimistic for, for the retail industry, in my view. I agree. I am very optimistic. I mean, we've seen a lot of companies go bust and of we've course. seen a lot of empty space. But overall, you know, it's a very exciting time for retail. I mean, particularly for observers like us. I'm not sure I'd want to be the CEO of a legacy retailer with 500 shops with long, complex leases right now. But but I think there is a real chance to reinvent not just retail, but the city centers, as I was saying, you know, the spaces where retail have traditionally been. I think will become a little bit more diverse and that will be a good thing if we get the balance right because it will give people more reasons to come into that space and visit the shops definitely so ian i've, I've really enjoyed our conversation how can people f- 
find out more about you and about what you're up to? Well, um, as you mentioned, I am on LinkedIn. So if you go onto LinkedIn and Google for Ian Scott, I'm normally one of the first two or three to crop up. Um, and I, I regularly post, as you say, these reports on stores um, with a lot of content in. So I'm happy you know, for people to be able to download those. Also, I've started my own podcast with a wonderful guy called Toby Barnes, who is an ex-senior Nike guy. It's called Retails, R-E hyphen T-A-L-E-S. Play on the words. I love that name, by the way. <laughs> it was. It wasn't mine. Uh, I'd love to tell you that, but it was, it was a wonderful friend called Paul who came up with the idea and created the identity for it. Um, Paul Dawes was fabulous in helping us with that. So um, my search optimization is dreadful at the moment, but if you go onto YouTube and put in Ian Scott retails you will find me um we've got about eight episodes so far where we chat to different people about different aspects of retail as well cool well why don't we put a link on the show notes just to help help people in the right direction bless you thank you i appreciate that (laughs) so they don't end up getting distracted by cat videos also by ian scott Yes, there, there, are other, there are other retailers, and there's a guy, a guy oh, called okay, Ian okay. Scott, who sings a very dreadful Whaley song. So I did, I did a quick Google search before. So that's we did not it. you, no? It's not me singing. <laughs> I hasten to add, no, help for me. Cool. Well, awesome. Well, that, that's been uh, brilliant, Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, joining the virtual stage at Retail Transformation Live as well. It was an awesome session that you did with Kaiser and Bender and Jeremy C as well. You were a wonderful facilitator because we, the four of us, just hit it off. And since that was what, July last year, wasn't yes, it? So almost was, a year uh, ago. Retail um, Transformation Live 2. Yes, it was. And we had a fabulous time doing that, uh, even though Jeremy took over and used up 90% of the time for his swap, but <laughs> we'll forgive him that. Um, but since then, we've been doing monthly podcasts on the Kaiser and Bender podcast series, where we get together with Jeremy in Singapore and obviously Kaiser and Bender in, in Illinois, and we just talk about the world of retail. So that all came around because of you and Retail Transformation Live too. So we're forever grateful. And, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming back as well, Ian. It's great to be invited back. Um, you know, we, we, the four of us get on so well. Um, we just interact and there's, there seems to be a real natural chemistry. And thank you for, for coming on to uh, the Retail Transformation Show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I love listening to the podcast. So I am uh, truly honoured to be invited uh, as a guest as well. Thank you. The honour is all ours. Trust me. I do hope you enjoyed that session there with Ian Scott. Now, as mentioned, Ian has kindly shared some content for the show notes. So you're definitely going to want to check out that over at obandco.uk slash 143. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the Retail Transformation Show podcast, then here are three that I think you'll love. First up, episode 127, where I caught up with Tiffany Lung And we discussed the huge global trend of checkout free stores, things like Amazon Go, for example. Then in episode 109, I caught up with Khalia Bustani as we talked about pop-up stores and, and how this is actually a huge shift and a huge opportunity for many brands. And then finally, in episode 96, it was great to join Chris Walton as we discussed the future of the store of the future. So three great episodes there. If you would like to check them out and you can't remember the numbers, then the one place that you must head over to is obandco.uk slash 143. There you'll find the show notes. 
those three episodes to check out. And why not sign up for the Retail Transformation Briefing, a weekly email where you can get the scoop on what's happening in the world of retail transformation. Hear about latest insights, hear about new innovations, new trials, new deployments, and other great content that is going to inspire you to retail transformation success. Sign up for free at the show notes, which once again are obandco.uk slash 143. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to joining you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.